בשעה 12:00 בלילה בחצות, משלא אושר תקציב המדינה לשנת 2020. אני מכריז על כך שהכנסת מתפזרת בשעה הזו, וכי הבחירות לכנסת ה-24 תתקיימנה ביום י' בניסן התשפ"א, 23 במרץ 2021. And those were the dry, loyally tones of Knesset Speaker Yariv Levin on December 22nd at the stroke of midnight announcing the dissolution of the 23rd Knesset. And that means, yes, Israel is headed for yet another election, the country's fourth in just less than two years. I'm Anshul Pfeffer, and I'm here to introduce Haaretz's Election Overdose podcast, co-hosted with Dr. Dalia Scheindlin, in which over the next 13 weeks we'll tell you everything you need to know by trying to add some sense, depth, and a bit of experience to figure out what's happening. As mentioned, my co-host for the next three months is Dalia Scheindlin. Those of you who take a close interest in Israeli politics may have come across Dalia's excellent expert analysis for numerous news organizations over the years. Dalia, besides her media analysis roles, holds a PhD in political science, but perhaps more importantly, has worked on political campaigns as a pollster, and strategic consultant for over 20 years, including eight here in Israel alone and in about 15 other countries. Luckily for us, Dalia isn't working on any of the party's campaigns this time around, so we were quick to snap her up as a co-host of Election Overdose. Hi, Dalia, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Anshul. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, let me also introduce you to our audience. This is Anshul Pfeffer sitting with me. Senior correspondent and columnist for Haaretz, he's written for both the Hebrew and English editions of Haaretz. He's reported on various beats for numerous newspapers over the last 25 years, including on religious and Jewish diaspora affairs, defense, education. He's also reported for Haaretz on war, revolutions, terror attacks from 30 countries around the world. Anshul wrote the biographies of Benjamin Netanyahu and Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, and his English columns focused largely on political analysis. For the English Haaretz, he's also the Economist correspondent in Israel. In each episode, we'll start with the key developments over the past week. In the second section, we will have a guest, an expert, or an important figure in the Israeli political landscape. And in the third section, we'll be taking a deep dive into a specific campaign and election issue. Today's guest is extremely exciting because he won't be available to us for much longer. David Halpfinger is the New York Times bureau chief. David, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Let's get started by walking through what happened last week and a bit further back. Dalia, how did we get here? Why is Israel moving into new elections yet again? And what does the political system look like going into this cycle? Well, we've got to start with the last number of months going back to earlier this year. In the clip you played at the beginning of the show, Yariv Levin, the chair of the Knesset, announced that since the government failed to pass a budget, the Knesset must disband. But the failure to pass a budget, of course, was a symptom of a much deeper disease of dysfunction that has plagued this particular Israeli coalition, the current government, pretty much since it was established in May. That coalition was established between two essentially mortal enemies on the political campaign for the previous year. It was an emergency government. It was supposed to limit its legislation and policymaking only to managing corona. Uh, the agreement mandated that the government should pass a two-year budget this past August. It included that minor aspect of a rotation for the prime minister position uh, after 18 months. That should have happened on November 17th, 2021. 
But in August, when this government was supposed to pass a budget, the Likud party, led by Netanyahu, of course, the prime minister, insisted on a one-year budget, the, the first break of the coalition agreement. And many interpreted this as sabotaging the agreement in order to start kind of delegitimizing that agreement, uh, leading to some sort of political chaos, and essentially trying to get out of the rotation. At that time, it should have already led automatically to new elections, but the sides reached a compromise. They got an extension on passing the budget till December. By then, everything had fallen apart. When Netanyahu and Blue and White leader Benny Gantz negotiated in December, Netanyahu essentially reopened the entire agreement. Mainly, he wanted to add clauses that would limit, constrain the powers of the justice minister, currently held by Blue and White, while Netanyahu himself is, of course, facing prosecution for corruption cases. The talks failed. The politicians started telling the media that a fourth election would be better than a government that doesn't work. This is how I read what happened. But to understand the underlying motivations of each actor, why did they do these things? What are their interests? How do we translate what's behind these decisions? Angela, I'd like to ask you, what do you think Netanyahu's real motivation was? What was Gantz's motivation? Well, there are three things which have been motivating Netanyahu. First, his extreme reluctance to leave the prime minister's office under any circumstance, even if he's lost his majority, which he he hasn't basically had a majority now for, for two years. Second, his corruption case is always at the front of his mind, and he doesn't yet have a majority in the Knesset, not only to govern and to support to support an Netanyahu government, he doesn't have that majority to vote in favor of a law which will grant him, the serving prime minister, immunity from prosecution. And third, there's his tendency, and this is a, a basic part of the Netanyahu character, to defer difficult decisions until the very last moment. So Netanyahu, for all these reasons, didn't want to pass the 2021 budget because by doing so, he would not he would have lost his opportunity to to break out of the coalition in March of 2021 and hold uh, an election when the polls would, he assumed or hoped would be more favorable for him. So for all these reasons, Netanyahu had no interest in passing the 2021 budget. He basically held Israel hostage by not passing the budget because he wanted to to have that, that opportunity in March to hold election in perhaps in June, July at a more, at a more fortuitous moment for him. As for Gantz's motivations, that his, Benny Gantz's thinking is a lot less coherent. He's a young politician. We don't really, his, you know, his political thought process is, uh, isn't exactly very clear. Young politician is right. I mean, we should recall that he had actually zero political experience before. And that you know, we've seen over the last two years how essential it is in Israeli politics to have that kind of experience and knowledge of the dark arts to be able to take on someone like Netanyahu, certainly. Throughout his career before politics, as a, as a general in the army, was always known as someone incapable of making a decision without hearing everyone in the room and then taking a nap or going to sleep <laughs> overnight and making the decision the next day. That was one of the things that he was notorious for as a senior officer. And in politics, Gantz wasn't surrounded by junior officers often telling him what he wanted to hear, certainly. Gantz was surrounded by erstwhile allies and aides giving him conflicting advice all the time. And we saw until until last, last Tuesday that he just couldn't make up his mind whether or not to give Netanyahu a bit more time. And ultimately, when the bill came up delaying the budget deadline for its first reading, he ordered the blue and white MKs to abstain on the bill. And that would have allowed the bill to pass, giving Netanyahu some more time for maneuvering. The bill to postpone. The bill to postpone the, the 2020 budget because that hadn't been brought either. By that point, there were enough MKs in blue and white who were totally fed up 
and despite Gantz's order, they voted against. So ultimately, both Netanyahu and Gantz are now being dragged to an election against their will. But enough said about this miserable government. Let's go forward. Daria, we're still in the Hanukkah Christmas New Year holiday period. By the time this election campaign is over, we'll be on the eve of Pesach. So let's kick off with the Seder night question. Manishtana, what, if anything, is different about this election? What puts it apart from the previous three campaigns of 29-2020? That is a great question. And I think that what's more interesting to me right now is actually what hasn't changed. Uh, I look at this, of course, partly from the perspective of a pollster, and when I think about what is the most determining factor for how people vote, it's their ideology. Left, right, center, self-defined, of course. And that really hasn't changed, at least not in my research, over the course of not only the last year or since the last elections, but in over a decade. We have about half of the Israeli electorate who self-defines as right-wing, about one-quarter who defines themselves as centrist, and roughly 20% who define themselves as left. Now, the right and the left include both moderate on each side and firm right and left. But that's the basic breakdown. So if we had parties that were running and reflecting all those general shades, those shades of political opinions, uh, those general camps, not much would change. Like in previous elections, we would see a small majority, 50% or more, for parties that are ideologically right-wing. And ultra-Orthodox. And the ultra-Orthodox, of course. When I say right-wing, I'm including ultra-Orthodox and religious parties because those uh, voters who are ultra-Orthodox or national religious are very heavily defined as right-wing by their own self-definition. So I count them in the ideological right-wing block. Of course, what happens after the elections is that one of those right-wing parties may decide not to go into a coalition with Netanyahu. That's exactly what happened uh, with Avigdor Lieberman's very ideologically right-wing party after the April 2019 elections. He refused to go into a government with Netanyahu, and therefore Netanyahu, even though the right wing won a majority of the seats, couldn't form his coalition. And that's why we've been stuck three times over. The same thing has happened because the electorate's ideology hasn't changed. What I think is uh, looks different now, to some extent, is that there is a sort of implosion within the party system in Israel. Now, Israeli elections always produce party shakeups, uh, but there's kind of a frenzy right now. Uh, we have new parties on the right, on the center, maybe soon on the left. Who knows what's going on with the joint list, the coalition of four different parties representing mostly Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, And I think that what could happen that might be different, which is we have to hedge all of this until we know what the party system looks like. If those right-wing competitors do as well as the polls are indicating right now, and we'll talk a lot about the polls later, uh, even if the ideological right-wing parties win, which they certainly will get a majority, it looks looks that way, given what I uh, mentioned before, Netanyahu simply, once again, might not have a majority of loyalists. The right-wing parties who have competed with Netanyahu could form coalitions with the center parties if they do well enough. They could reach off or across the aisle basically behind his back. You could almost call it a historic shakeup. We'll see if it does, uh, if it justifies that uh, label. Is the emergence of a new party on the right now? Obviously, we've had many new parties on the right, but Gidon Sarah's Star Wars take off uh, New Hope is not just another party on the right, at least in the polls. And the question is how much we should trust them. You'll expand on that in a moment. But if the polls are borne out and Gidon Sarah's New Hope does anywhere near as well as the polls have been predicting in the last couple of weeks in the region of 20 seats, 
there won't be as many seats as Likud perhaps wins, but it'll be enough to form around him a nucleus of other right-wing parties, together with Nathalie Bennett's Yamina and Avigdor Lieberman's Israel Beitenu, first of all, to be a larger force among the right, and that is unprecedented in Israeli election, in Israeli political history, and because the centre-left have basically lost their attempt to lead the anything-but-Bibi campaign, parties of the centre-left, even as far left as Meretz, perhaps, will be joining that coalition if they have enough seats to unseat Netanyahu. It's a new scenario shaking up everything we knew. And the incredible thing about it, you, know, you mentioned ideology before. There's not even one gram of a difference between Gidon Saar's ideology to Netanyahu's ideology, and he's not even trying to, to pretend as if there is. The only thing which is important about this party is a group of people who are fed up with Netanyahu. They've grown up in his shadow for, for, for so long. They know they'll never get out of his shade unless they remove him. It's almost a Shakespearean moment. And who are all these other men jumping into politics? Ron Khuldai, Ofer Shalach, tell us about them. So yeah, just Tuesday night, uh, Ron Khuldai, Tel Aviv's mayor, finally, after threatening for years to join national politics, took the plunge, though he's still staying Tel Aviv mayor until he sees how well he does in the election. And we won't gets, know what to do without him. He's been mayor for 20 years. Well, that's your, your problem. You live in Tel Aviv. Uh, joined in, uh, you know, he, he joined the fray, jumped uh, into the waters, launching a party with the very imaginative name, the Israelis. And now we have no less than six parties in the centre-left. Khuldé uh, is joining last week's new party of Ofer Shelach, called The Independent, another great name. And then there's what's left of Gantz's Blue and White, Gantz's old partner, Yair Lapid, with his Yeshatid party, and two old traditional parties, Labour, which is on the brink of disappearing, and Merit, which actually hasn't been doing too badly in the polls. But six parties crowded in an electoral space, which at most a third of the voters will vote for. No way those parties will uh, all be able to cross the threshold if they run individually. We can expect in the next five weeks until the February the the 4th deadline for filing uh, candidates lists to the Electoral Commission that at least some of these parties will merge. So so why are they all running? Why do we have six separate parties? Because each of these parties are now trying to assess, once again, in the polls, how well they're doing, what their relative strength is, what is their chance of crossing the threshold if they run individually. And once they've assessed their strength, thanks to the polls, they will have to make the, the difficult decision with whom to merge. Party leaders will have to decide, can they run as party leaders? Or do they have to take the second, number two, or number three slots? And all that has to be done over the next five weeks by the February 4th deadline. So, Dahlia, you're our, not just our co-host, but also our resident pollster. How can we trust the polls right now? So many decisions will be made on the basis of the polls. So, take us through how that decision-making is going to be affected by this dark science that you're an expert at. Well, that's interesting. It sounds like what you want me to do is explain how much we can trust the polls and then jump right ahead to strategy uh, based on the polls. So first of all, I, I think that it's not necessarily a great situation that so many of these decisions, as you point out, are being uh, made based on polls. But let me just start by saying that polls are already very maligned these days. We all know we don't have the right expectations for what polls can provide. Looking at today's responses, I mean, in the current phase uh, about polls is really not very helpful for predicting the future. In general, polls are not great at prediction. They're much better at showing where things are now. But at present, the party system isn't even stabilized. If the people don't know who's running, the polls can't know more than them. So the only thing we can really know is which direction things are moving. 
To do that, I look at ranges, the range of each party, averages, trends, trajectories. We have about seven polls so far since the elections were called. I'm talking about public polls. And let me give you the basic ranges that we're looking at. Likud has been polling at 25 to 29 seats, an average of 27 seats. That's significantly lower than the 36 seats that it started with from the March elections. Gidon Saar's new party is polling between 17 and 22 seats, an average of 20 seats starting from zero. Blue and white started with 33 seats after the March election, but that currently they're polling at about five seats. That sounds really bad. But if you think about the fact that Yesha Teed has an average of 14 seats, together those two parties have 19 seats on the average in polls, which means the collapse isn't quite as bad as it may sound at first, especially because, as you point out, some of these parties will merge. A lot of questions, a lot of topics to still discuss over the next uh, 13 weeks. But I think it's now time for our guest. So, David, we're thrilled to welcome you to our inaugural show. David Halbfinger has been the New York Times Bureau Chief in Israel uh, for the last three years. A little over. A little over three years. It's an exciting but maybe sometimes thankless uh, job. You get attacked from all sides. And we're sorry that you're leaving soon, so thank you again for joining us. We haven't counted, but I'm guessing you've covered more Israeli elections than any of your predecessors. What is the main thing that you've learned about Israeli politics throughout this strange year of three election cycles and another one coming up? I I had never covered uh, a parliamentary system before. I'd always covered the United States political system, a two-party system. So there was a a healthy amount of time getting used to the multivariable calculus of it all and algebra, I guess. Um, And I'm not so good at math. But um, Neither am I. Just a pollster. Just a pollster, yeah. So I I think there's some more interesting things that have have emerged along the way. One of them is just the capacity for humiliation that Israeli politicians seem to have to possess. You know, you were you were talking before about um, Bibi and Gantz, and you know, there's some similarities, for example, in their in their their you know procrastination tendencies. The you know whether it's indecision or the need for a nap. Um, I think you know. Bibi is a man who seems to have no shame that that sort of oozes from every pore and every announcement and every decision and every Twitter video. But, you know, to some degree, I think we see that from Gantz as well. You know, certainly like he he had to abase himself and and endure endless humiliation thanks to Bibi in the last year. You know, it started nicely and it it ended pretty poorly. But but you know um, I mean think about somebody like Lapid you know this is a man who's who's a, a really a consummate politician he's been at this a while. Let's just uh, clarify yet you're Lapid head of the Ashatid party who merged uh, with Gantz. Exactly, but who had to take a back seat to a political naive, and it didn't end well. And you know what is but but everybody says this guy has a ceiling you know that he's and 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 I don't see him cracking it this time around either, but he keeps coming at it you know. Um, and then we haven't talked about Bennett, Naftali Bennett from Yamina. Um, this is the man who's been waiting for his moment, right? You know, to, 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 to finally stride in and save the day for the Israeli right wing and, and you know, in, and take seize or inherit or, you know, pick up the, the pieces of the mantle of Netanyahu and instrols Gidon Saar to ruin his day. And not only that, but Saar says what Bennett hasn't been able to say yet, which is, I won't sit with Bibi. I don't know how I don't know how Bennett goes day after day without saying those words. Well, he's taking Make, flack for it. They make fun of him on television I, I, shows. I, back to my point about humiliation. What 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 is it about these people? I, you know, in America, like 
at least as I recall it now, I've been here for most of the Trump administration. I've watched it from afar. Uh, and he, I have to say, let's just disclaim at the outset that, you know, anything I might criticize Israelis for, you could blow back at me and say, but <laughs> what about Trump? Okay, I will lay that on the table. But but again, like, every, the, 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 the Trump rules do not apply to anyone else in America. And anyone else in America would, would not be able to withstand this shame. You know, people would skulk off the off the stage so in the last few weeks of your of your term netanyahu's term is is going to continue but the halfinger term is about to end um in the coverage that you're going to be doing for the new york times of the of the campaign in the time that's left i can see you already rolling your eyes at the thought what are you going to uh, how what what is going to be your manishtana how are you going to explain to New York Times readers that this election may be a bit different than the previous three that you've already covered? So we already did a piece um, looking at this as the right wing's chance. And I think that, for the moment at least, remains the dominant frame, right? I mean, there is something exciting. Um, maybe if you're not Naftali Bennett, there is something, you know, even if you're a lefty, there is something exciting about a guy like Saar. I mean, he, he ran a terrible primary a year ago, but it, it seemed like, in retrospect, some kind of Dress rehearsal. Just to, remi- just to remind readers, Sarah was the only uh, person to challenge Netanyahu in the Likud leadership primary a year ago and received only 23% of Likud members' votes. Right, but perhaps he took names. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because this time around, you know, he had a rollout that really has gone well. I mean, you know, you'll, you'll know the players and your and your listeners will know the players far better than I. But it was striking when when Zev Elkin very striking. Um, He's been a stalwart you know, Netanyahu loyalist, a confidant, a loyalist. You know, a guy who was with him and and defended him. And it's like you know something Jared Kushner said. It was always it's always no until you get to yes. Well, with with Elkin, it's 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 uh you know it was it was BB 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 until it was no BB. And Elkin was such a confidant of Netanyahu that he was the only person to accompany him in meetings to put in serving as BB's private Russian translator even. Wow. But that, that was mostly in order to marginalize Levin. I think that uh, there's, there are a few things that you can say about a person. If you, if you take him to meetings with Putin, it means he's close. That's true. Well, I, I defer to you experts. In any case, what he had to say was just very striking. And, and others are, you know, seem to have, have joined in. And, and the whole thing does smack of a very very interesting contest i mean i don't i don't know that the the new hope party you know is is built to to last for more than this election it seems like it's built to be a pod to overtake Likud from within if it gets its way but we should also point out that by contrast to benny gantz who had no political experience gidon sar is a veteran survivor of israeli politics not just a survivor a rising star at different points maybe he'll do better yeah, and he does seem to be uh, quite effective at the inside game. Is there anything going on anywhere else in the Israeli political map, or is all the action on the right? I just want to go back to your question about what I've learned about Israeli yeah. politics sure. for a second. You know, in the United States, I don't know when exactly it was. I think it was either the early 19th or maybe even the late 18th century when, you know, this being paired with your loser... Cohabitation with your loser. Cohabitation with the one you defeated. This, this, this strange thing that you guys call unity government... Like I, I came here. I, I heard talk of unity governments, past and future, and this present thing. I, 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 I thought that I was the idiot for not understanding how it could work. It turns out I wasn't the idiot. It just doesn't work. So, so why do they, why do they still do this? How, how is that supposed to make any sense at all? Especially when you have 
somebody like Netanyahu just wants the job more than anyone else is is has shown he's capable of basically taking down, destroying, knifing in the back anybody who comes close to him. You know, like how, how is it ever supposed to work? And if you say it made some sense to Gantz, I don't see it. How, how I, I I just can't answer this question. Please, I think Netanyahu has had so many rounds of convincing people that there is a new Netanyahu and even some people in the Haaretz building can be quoted as having written about the new Netanyahu and having been taken in and you know, like every con man has a has this knack of being able to fool people over and over and over again until there's no one left to fool. But this reminds me of of, of a scene in one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid, War Games. It's not a scene, it's and a lie. you kind of look like Matthew Broderick but now that I, was, I think about when it. When I was younger and better looking people and thinner people told me that. But but you know there's this there's this thing in there you know well we, you play tic tac toe over and over again and, and 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 never seem to get the message, you know that's kind of Israeli politics in a nutshell. How many times are we going to go through this election? You know the, the, what what are they what is the line in that movie? You know the only way to win is not to play the game at all. You know I, I guess that's not really an option here, but you kind of wish it were. Like how you you guys the, the only way to beat Netanyahu is not to run in an election at all. What I really don't understand is you guys say this is a fourteen episode series. Why don't you just call it a show and make it open ended? <laughs> I think that what it really reflects is the fact that Israeli society is extremely fragmented and divided in its political system. David, we could carry on talking about your three years here for another three years. But last question, please answer in one sentence. You arrived here shortly after the 2016 election in the U.S., hoping to shelter from the Trump years in, in, in quiet and peaceful Jerusalem. Who's had a more peaceful time over the last three and a half years, you or your colleagues covering politics in the U.S.? You know, I actually think that it's been rougher for them. I, I, I do. It's been a little easier for me, certainly here. Even though you've had three elections, they've only had one. Yeah, no, the, the elections are easy. I think the aftermath is a lot harder, and and watching what's been going on in your country, uh, you know, it's this is not my country. That that is, and um, that's a, maybe a harsh statement to say, um, but there is a little emotional distance that you get when you're dealing with other people's problems and not your own. Well, let's hope the aftermath of your time here and your return to, to the US will be will be a lot more peaceful than the aftermath of the elections here. Amen. Thank you for coming, David. Thank you. We're not going to spend too much time on our third section today, but we do want to talk about at least one additional deeper issue about campaigns. Anshul, you have a question about political campaigns. So for our, uh, our listeners who aren't uh, based in Israel, who haven't been watching Israeli television over the last few days, I'll just fill in a, an, an important uh, space here. On Thursday night, Uvda, Israel's oldest investigative news television program, began its 26th season on air with a blistering behind-the-scenes account of Gantz's campaign, including interviews with the campaign advisors who were involved in trying to fight off private investigators working on behalf of the other side, trying to obtain embarrassing and damaging details about Gantz. His personal, I think by now we can spell it out, his sex life, and use them to damage his chances of replacing Netanyahu as prime minister. Dalia, you've been inside those smoke-filled inner sanctums of the campaign headquarters. Did you learn anything new from this episode of Uvda? And how typical is it of campaigns you've worked on? Did you ever use a rabbi to entrap the chief strategist of your opponent, admitting his candidate could be a risk to Israel's security? I would like to tell the listeners right now, I never approached a rabbi to try to blackmail a candidate. However, 
after working on so many election campaigns and I'm merging all of my experience here, eight campaigns in Israel, any number of other countries, what it really highlighted for me, it's not anything new. I mean, it just brought me back to what it is, the reality of working on a campaign. And there are at least two layers in the campaign. There's the layer of political strategy, what the voters think, my role, which is research, listening to voters through focus groups, analyzing numbers, trying to spin it into analysis and strategy, thinking about the issues on the public agenda. I'm not trying to be self-righteous, but that's why I got into this business. And yet, the first moment I ever set foot in a campaign, it's clear that there's another level, and that is rather dark. It's the dark side. Uh, it is manipulation. It is threats. It is... Uh, quid pro quos. It is a sort of political theater because on stage, in the media, before, in the eyes of the public, the candidates are presenting what they stand for. Um, they're competing with each other. Behind the scenes, they're all kind of uh, colluding on some level about how to hurt or help one another in ways that advance one another's interests. There's advisors who are sitting behind those closed doors where even campaign insiders are not part of the conversation I'm, I'm trying I'm because try they're too sensitive and they're too dangerous and they may actually even be borderline illegal and sometimes you know sometimes there are police investigations afterwards and sometimes there are arrests afterwards and corruption comes out and I'd, I'd love to say that this is unique to one or two campaigns I think it is the system itself and I'm not even saying which system I've seen it in many countries I think campaigns are inherently a blood sport well from that to a more um cheerful part of Israeli election campaigns. One of the best parts of Israeli election well, campaigns. Why, Let's not be modest. Why don't you introduce our weekly uh, feature because it's one of your favorites. Okay, as some of my Twitter followers may know, I really like music and I think that music is an essential, actually an underrated and essential part of campaigns. Um, they, there are jingles that stay with us for years and we want to end each show by taking you through a historic jingle in Israeli political campaign history that have some of them have become really iconic. Um, and then we'll explain to you why we think they're important. The first one for this week is our favorite historical Israeli campaign jingle Sorry, at this your, moment. Your favorite. My favorite. True. I'm not going to speak for anybody else I, in this room. I'll introduce my favorite one in a further episode. And by the way, next episode, I'll have a different favorite because I really fall in love with all of them, uh, including for the parties that I don't vote for, like this one. This is an esoteric party, basically the legalization party. It never crossed the threshold. It was from their campaign in 2006, and we'll listen to it right now. Yes, why is this so clever? You heard the breath. Of course, the jingle is a double entendre. Literally, it means we take different kinds of breaths. But the word for breath, like in English, also means aspirations. They're saying we're not just about pot. We actually have a social agenda in this ad. They're supporting LGBT marriage rights. Anshul and I also have a very ambitious agenda. We aspire to bring you a new level of order and understanding to the Gordian knot and the circus of Israeli politics. And that's it for our first episode of Election Overdose, Aritz's podcast series on the 2021 elections. Thank you once again to our special, very special guest, David Halfinger, the soon-to-be ex-New York Times Bureau Chief here in Israel. We'd be happy to hear listeners' questions about anything to do with the election. Probably the best place to ask those questions is on Dahlia's Twitter account, but you can try mine as well. But please, listeners, feel free. We'll try to answer as many questions as we can as the campaign goes on. A very special thanks to our producer, Jonathan. You can hear this podcast on all fine podcast vendors, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, etc. And, of course, on Haritz.com, our website. 
We're looking forward to being with you next week. For now, goodbye. Shalom Benito from Tel Aviv.